Another climate activist is arrested in Vietnam, cabinet reshuffling in the Philippines, and ASEAN countries plan to hold their first ever joint military exercises. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is June 15th, 2023. On today's show... Many of the region's other top exercises are expanding as more countries come together around our shared principle, our shared principle. Last year, our annual Garuda Shield expanded from a bilateral exercise with Indonesia to include 14 countries with more than 4,000 troops. That was Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin speaking at the annual Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore on the United States Security Partnerships in the Indo-Pacific. Before you get too excited, no, we didn't have Secretary Austin on the podcast, but Greg did attend in person and capture some sound bites from the ground. So stay tuned as he unpacks the conference's key takeaways with Alina. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Lam Tran in the studio. She's the inaugural program coordinator with the Australia chair at CSIS and also originally from Vietnam. Hi, Lam. Hi, Karen. Hi, everyone. This is Lam. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be on the pod. So if you've been following Southeast Asia Radio, you know that I almost always ask my guests a food-related question in the opening segment. Tell us, what's been happening between Australia and Vietnam on the food front? Right up my alley, Karen. So I know you already covered this in the latest on Southeast Asia update. Also, a quick reminder for everyone to check out this superb and very informative bi-weekly column. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese of Australia had his first trip to Hanoi after making a keynote speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue, marking the 50th anniversary of the bilateral diplomatic relations. When he was there, he visited a local beer and bangmi vendor, and the shop has now renamed itself, surprise, surprise, draft beer prime minister. A similar story happened in 2016 when President Obama and the late celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain visited a buncha restaurant in Hanoi that is now called Buncha Obama. So I think these two anecdotes are great examples of how local cuisine can be used as an important and very effective tool of diplomacy, especially in Southeast Asia. That's such an interesting story. Thanks for sharing. Moving on to our headlines, we talked about Vietnam's struggles with their energy transition in our last episode. Lam, can you kick us off with the latest in Vietnam's climate news? Absolutely. So last Thursday, the Vietnamese government arrested a prominent climate activist, Hoàng Thị Minh Hồng, for allegedly evading taxes. Her husband and two members of her staff were arrested as well. This makes her the fifth activist in Vietnam to have been arrested on similar accusation in the last two years. Yes, I remember the story of Nguyễn Thị Cai, who was sentenced to two years in prison in 2002 under similar charges after she called on the government to reduce coal usage. In 2021, activist and lawyer Dak Dinh Bak was also arrested for advocating that Vietnam reduce its coal usage, and he just began a hunger strike last week to protest his wrongful imprisonment. How do you think this could impact international attitudes towards Vietnam? Well, this arrest has triggered a strong backlash from the international community, German Foreign Ministry has expressed concern over Huang's arrest, saying they view the arrest critically with regard to the upcoming implementation of the Trust Energy Transition Partnership, short as JETP, a 15 billion climate deal signed between Vietnam and international partners in December of last year. So weeks before the arrest, dozens of environmental and human rights groups had urged President Biden and other world leaders to pressure the Vietnamese government on its human rights record before releasing the JetP funding. 
There are also calls for President Biden to condition a potential visit later this year by the Vietnamese Communist Party General Secretary Nguyen Phu Trọng on the release of imprisoned climate activists. That's definitely something to keep an eye on, and it also shows how much the issues of human rights and climate change really overlap. There are a lot of worries that without the involvement of civil society actors, JetP could come under mismanagement, which is why activists across the world have called on funders to ensure civil society groups have a role in designing and monitoring how the deal is implemented. Okay, now shifting to the next topic. I heard there's been some changes to the Philippine cabinet recently, Karen. That's right. President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. just appointed two new cabinet secretaries, Gilberto Gibo Teodoro Jr. for the Department of National Defense and Dr. Teodoro Ted Herbosa for the Department of Health. If the first name sounds familiar, that's because Gibo Teodoro first served as defense secretary during Gloria Macapagal Arroyo's presidency from 2007 to 2009. This makes him the third person to lead Marcos's defense department in just over a year and the first to do so with the rank of secretary. Another fun fact is that Gibo Teodoro ran for the Senate unsuccessfully in 2022, so he was only eligible to be appointed after the ban on holding government office for defeated candidates expired one year later. What about the new health secretary? The post has been vacant since Marcos assumed the presidency, right? That's right. Dr. Herbosa is stepping into a new position, but he is no strange face to the Department of Health. He served as the undersecretary for DOH under President Aquino from 2010 to 2015. Previously, he was also a special advisor to the National Task Force Against COVID-19 at the height of the pandemic. His appointment has not come without controversy, though. As the health undersecretary, he supported privatization of government-owned hospitals and the Alliance of Health Workers has called his appointment an insult to their community. In a recent tweet, Hyperza appeared to apologize for things he had said before but did not specify his previous statements. When we mention the Philippines, we invariably end up talking about the South China Sea. So let's move into that lane. Last week, Indonesia announced that ASEAN is planning on holding its first ever joint military exercises in the North Natuna Sea in September, which is big news. Indonesia's military chief has stated that the drills will be annual and focus on maritime security and search and rescue operations, rather than combat training. They also have the added purpose of strengthening ASEAN centrality, which is a cornerstone of Indonesia's ASEAN chairmanship this year. Indeed, Karen. President Jokowi has really been emphasizing ASEAN unity, the concept that has historically been tested in the South China Sea, where Vietnam, the Philippines, Brunei, and Malaysia all have competing territorial claims with China. In 2017, Indonesia renamed the southernmost waters of the South China Sea the North Natuna Sea, similar to how the Philippines called its exclusive economic zone in those waters the West Philippine Seas, in a challenge against China's claim of traditional rights. But Karen, what else is notable about this announcement? So, although ASEAN navies have conducted joint drills with both China and the U.S. before, this is the first exercise that will be held within the bloc and not with any external power. Given the escalation in regional maritime tensions in the past few years, many ASEAN nations are pushing back against what they see as China's encroachment in the region. But frustratingly, negotiations over a code of conduct in the South China Sea have been ongoing for more than 20 years with little progress made. What do you think the exercise means for ASEAN as a grouping? Well, I think it's definitely a symbolic effort led by Jakarta to demonstrate ASEAN relevance, especially since so much of the coverage about South China Sea revolves around Sino-US rivalries. The risk of confrontation in disputed water will increase alongside with more oil and gas exploration activities by claimant states, so the drill could help build trust and reduce misunderstanding within the bloc. 
And those are the headlines. Thank you so much for joining me, Lam. My absolute pleasure, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina discuss highlights from the Shangri-La Dialogue. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. I am your host, Gregory Polting with CSIS, joined as ever by my co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hi, Alina. Hi, Greg. Today, we've got a special episode for you because I just got back from a couple weeks traveling in the region, capped off at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. So I decided to grab some some guerrilla interview tapes on the sidelines and give the listeners a taste of what it's like for those of us who travel all the way to Singapore to listen to those speeches and don't just catch them on the evening news like sane folks would. But since I was the one running around capturing the interviews, I'm going to turn it over to Alina to steer the podcast today. Alina, it's all yours. Yes, I was not in Singapore, and I am curious to know all that went down and the Shangri-La dialogue, because we all know the action happens outside of those meeting rooms. But I did hear that some sparks were flying during some sessions but before we get into all that, this year's Shangri-La welcomed Prime Minister Albanese as its main keynote. Were there any particularly interesting insights from his speech? Right. So before I talk about the speech itself, to frame it up for folks, because you don't usually pay attention to the whole itinerary if you're not if you're not there, it's usually a two and a half day affair. So you get there. I mean, they have a bunch of other things for the ministers and, and formal delegates that, that the likes of me aren't invited to, but the open portions start with a welcoming dinner. And that's when they usually have a head of state level who speaks. And so this year that was out Anthony Albanese. So he gets the, the misfortune of doing the speech to like everybody who's jet lagged and exhausted, who's just arrived in Singapore and gone through this whole rigmarole of like getting through security at the Shangri-La hotel and registering, and mostly people either just want to get to sleep or they want to get off to their first set of drinks. Um, now that said, Albanese did a pretty good job. I mean, it was kind of a coming out party for him. I mean, he has obviously been to the region. He went to G20 and, and the ASEAN meetings last year, but this was his first chance to address kind of the public intellectuals of the region in, in this forum. And it was a pretty good speech. I mean, it was it was more positive than say the American or, or Chinese speakers usually get away with, but it hit on all the same points that you would expect. Multilateralism, Australia's focus on the region, the rules, international order, and so on. So it, it aligned nicely in a sense with what Austin, Secretary Austin, would deliver the next morning, but in a gentler, more pro-minilateral or multilateralism kind of way. And, and it also prompted the first of these uh, sideline interviews I did, which was with uh, Hung Lei Tu. Hung is a non-resident with the CSIS Southeast Asia program and is actually based in, in Australia. So why don't we hear what she had to say? So why don't I start by asking you key takeaways from the keynote speech at last night's dinner with Prime Minister Albanese and how you think that's going to be received in uh, Australia? Thanks, Greg. Good to be back. Yesterday was a great opportunity for Prime Minister Albanese to articulate new government that has been in place for a year now, uh, position and foreign policy uh, towards the region, and also an opportunity to do a little bit of strategic communication about its new defense strategic review and announcement of AUKUS. So I think the timing was great. Everyone was expecting to hear how this labor 
every government's policy will be different or continuous compared to the previous coalition government. It was a little bit more hawkish. I think that the message was well delivered, was very measured in a way. Wasn't There was not much of fireworks or really outstanding grappling your attention type of, of speech, but I think he delivered a lot of content in a way, of a very concrete way. For example, he spoke about food security, energy security, economic investment and stuff like that. Not that not often make it to the either keynote or first and second plenary sessions of Shangri-La. It's usually mostly very defense and very security focused. So I think that was, a, you know, a good shift, a good emphasis on pragmatic issues and a region, uh, you know, attention to regional priorities. And a message he sent was much, uh, very much so that Australia is a part of a region, is there to work collectively. He actually emphasized this collective agency and cooperation and multilateralism several times. So I think that was the main message he was trying to give to the region. So what I didn't hear was you had asked Hong about dinner. And you'd alluded to how these dinners usually go. I heard, though, that this year was particularly crowded at Shangri-La because I guess the conference came back to full force. Um, my really important question to you that I was hoping Pong would answer was, how is the food at dinner itself? Do you remember? I mean, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm a vegetarian. And, like, if... You know, you know, Singapore is actually a pretty good place to be a vegetarian. There's plenty of options, but it's never good to be a vegetarian at a large conference, right? Because they, they spend all their time worried about, like, the chicken and steak and fish that the normals are going to get. And then, like, the 5% of us who have dietary restrictions are like, what do you eat? Like, uncooked yams here. It wasn't actually that bad. I'm being facetious. It was fine for conference vegetarian food, but it was a bit crowded this year. Yeah, I guess we're well ahead of COVID and we've put that firmly behind us. Okay, so fast forward to the next morning. What happened? So so you said Secretary Austin spoke and we've heard a lot of commentary about that, about how he dinged his Chinese counterpart repeatedly for not wanting to talk and reopen channels of communication. Yeah, so the first full day of the conference starts and you get... You have a series of plenaries. It's, uh, it's, I think, three on the first day, two on the second. But the Chinese and American secretaries get their own, their plenary all to themselves. And all the others tend to be these panels of plenaries with, you know, sequential speeches by ministers. So uh, Secretary Austin opened up day one. And day one's when, you know, everybody packs in because they want to hear those two in the morning. So that's when things get get really busy. That's also when you might have seen the memes going around online of the Chinese delegation with their stickers claiming the seats. Austin gives a speech, and it was largely last year's speech for the first third to half, meaning it was all about the rules-based order and international law and the importance of defense of sovereignty, etc. You know, the kind of the positive agenda that the U.S. can deliver that, that he knew would land well with the partners. It was less Russia than it was last year, for obvious reasons. And then he pivoted from that portion into a kind of a, a 
valedictory sentimental about all of the great progress the U.S. has made on deepening the alliance with the Japanese, with the Philippines, progress on the Quad and AUKUS, some stuff on the Pacific, right? So there was kind of a, a lot more positives, a lot more deliverables that he could point to this year than he could last year. And then finally, he ends it with a third on basically uh, finger-wagging the Chinese for refusing to meet, for refusing to talk. Um, and this, you know, some folks had noted that, of course, he had asked, the, the Department of Defense had asked for a meeting with his counterpart, the new Chinese Defense Minister, uh, General Li Shangfu, that was refused. And then uh, Albanese had kind of brokered this quick handshake at the dinner the night before. And there was a line in Austin's speech where he said, you know, a, a handshake is not a replacement for communication and the right time to talk is any time. And that, I think it played well to begin with. It played particularly well because almost immediately afterwards, we got the video released about the U.S. and Canadian transit through the Taiwan Strait on the first day of, you know, later that afternoon in which a Chinese Navy vessel intentionally cut across the bow of the U.S. ship and almost caused a collision. So it really gave Austin ammunition um, to point and say, see, this is why we need to be talking to each other no matter how much you might be annoyed with us. So I guess, you know, rhetorical point to the Americans on on the morning of day one. This also prompts the second useful interview that we did on the sidelines. This was with uh, Bick Tran. So Bick is also another non-resident with the Southeast Asia program at CSIS and recently minted PhD, Dr. Bick Tran, and also recently took up a new position at the Lee Kuan Yew School at the National University of Singapore. So she's based now uh, in Singapore. Why don't we hear what, uh, what Bick had to say? So, Bick, today we heard the opening keynote from Secretary of Defense Austin, and then a whole series of other keynotes and side sessions. What jumped out at you uh, for the overall themes of today? Yeah, thanks, Greg. So I think for the speech by uh, Secretary Austin, I think the first half was good because he used kind of like affirmative language, you know, like supporting allies and partners and then upholding international law and contributing to peace. But then I think later, you know, he, he when he tried to rebook the narrative that, uh, you know, the narrative of escalation, then I think it's kind of when we try to do that, but kind of uh, repeat the words uh, that they use, the others I use, it's kind of make people remember it longer, actually. So it's kind of counterproductive. So I think instead he just, he could end it, but, you know, just using the affirmative language about the U.S. missions in the region. So uh, clearly the last third of that speech, he tried to really hammer home the narrative that the U.S. wants to set up guardrails and communication channels and China's not answering the phone. And even in the Q&A, yes. uh, when he was asked about nuclear nonproliferation and, and weapons control regimes, he said, or arms control, he said, well, China won't answer the phone, so how can we talk? Mm-hmm. So you don't think that that will land very well in the region? Oh, I mean, that's it's a different issues. I was talking about, you know, if uh, like repeating the negative narrative, then it make people remember more. But in this case, you know, by pointing out that it was the China, I mean, the Chinese who uh, don't want to talk, then it's actually kind of raised the stake for the Chinese to rethink. And I mean, the, the secretary made an effort to, you know, went over to have the handshake, right? So I think that's important. So just to back it up a bit, one of the reasons, I guess, or maybe the, the main reason why General Lee refused to speak to Secretary Austin is because he's sanctioned by the State Department, right? And my understanding is that didn't preclude the both of them from speaking to each other, 
But I guess it was a matter of face and image, and the Chinese simply did not want a sanction hanging over General Lee with them acceding to the U.S.'s request to speak. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And there are certainly folks that I talk to on the sidelines who are sympathetic to that argument, who would say, of course, you know, the Americans wouldn't want to meet either if Austin was sanctioned by by Beijing. It kind of became a Rorschach test. You know, those in the room, the Philippine delegation, most of the Europeans, the Japanese, who are already inclined to assume that the Americans are right, at least on this point, that we should have crisis communication. They don't really buy that argument. There were others from some of the Asian delegations, some, although I don't think most, who were sympathetic to the Chinese argument. I think the problem for Beijing, though, was that, I mean, again, the Taiwan Strait Transit plus just a week earlier, the video of of the near, well, the aerial intercept that was quite dangerous, um, kind of undercut, I think, the Chinese high ground on that one. Even if you're annoyed and we get it, you're annoyed and you lost face, still nobody wants to see a U.S.-China collision. It also, the Americans were able to point out that it's not just kind of the secretary-to-secretary stuff that's broken down. There's basically no communication between Indo-PACOM and the PLA. There's no communication between assistant secretary levels or between General Milley and counterparts. So it's not just Austin and Lee. The Chinese side has really refused to have any defense-level talks, even as they are breaking the ice on some of on, on talks with other parts of the U.S. government, NSC and, and the econ departments. So, of course, some of the successes that um, Secretary Austin touted related to the maritime security domain. Um, were there any responses from General Lee's side to that? Did he bring up the South China Sea dispute at all? Yeah, so there was, of course, a bunch of other plenaries throughout day one, including by Secretary Carlito Galvez, who's the Officer in, was the officer in charge of the Department of National Defense of the Philippines. He was replaced almost immediately after landing in Manila afterwards. He, of course, leaned heavily into the South China Sea. There was a, another um, discussion, uh, one of the sidelines special sessions that they have was focused on, on maritime security. And that also included Philippine speakers. There was a lot there. The Japanese leaned into it. You also heard a fair bit of maritime security talk from some of the Europeans, uh, the British defense minister. And so it it was a theme throughout the two days. It was the one narrative other than the hotline crisis communication piece that really wasn't playing well for the Chinese delegation throughout it. And you saw there was this weird kind of meta commentary that the Chinese delegation was the largest it has ever come to Shangri-La, but it was almost entirely uniform military. I think there was only one, maybe two actual civilians. I mean, Colonel Joe Bull is retired, but he's still, you know, more or less a PLA voice in this. So there's like two civilians who kept quiet. The PLA guys were the only uniformed officers in the room for two and a half days who asked a question. No other military officer asks a question at Shangri-La. And yet every single session, every single plenary, the Chinese made sure that they had people planted in the room who were prepared to ask a scripted question. And most of those fell into a few categories. They were either beating up on NATO, the U.S. alliance system, or pushing some of China's counter-narrative on freedom of navigation. And again, what I think they found is that that just didn't land very well, mostly because there were so many other delegations, especially the Filipinos there, who were asking their own questions, dinging the Chinese, and it really deflated, I think, the Chinese effort to counter-message the Americans on the freedom of navigation stuff. And so when Minister Li spoke on the second day, he started off with a more positive 
discussion, at least at first. But then he did pivot pretty hard on the Taiwan and the South China Sea stuff. And I don't think it played particularly well, especially once it came to the Q&A um, when he really got, got beat up. So why don't we listen to yet another interview, this time with Beck Stratting. Beck is with Latrobe University's Asia team in Australia, and she runs what's called the Blue Security Project, focused on maritime security. So Beck, what did you think of the Chinese Defense Minister's remarks? Yeah, it's not really surprising, as you say, that uh, maritime security is a big topic of conversation. And one of the things that I'm finding really interesting is the sort of Chinese strategic narratives around things like freedom of navigation, around UNCLOS, and the way that, that they're sort of talking about what it means to be a great power within this maritime order. So there's a few terms that keep coming up and they kept coming up in the the speech today. And that's this idea of hegemony, this idea that the didn't quite talk about the US in explicit terms, but when they say one country, we know what one country they're talking about. They're talking about the US as a hegemonic power that's trying to impose this idea of freedom of navigation upon the region. And the other term that I think is really interesting that was used in a maritime context is the idea of exceptionalism, this idea that the United States is an exceptional power because it's excluded itself from the convention. Now, it didn't explicitly say UNCLOS, but I think that we could infer that uh, he was referring to UNCLOS. So these are the sorts of narratives, I think, that China is using to criticise or to counter the US narratives because, you know, the US, with its free and open Indo-Pacific, is very much about, obviously, freedom of navigation and overflight, about rule of law about respecting international law of the sea. And so it's really interesting to see these narratives because they're very much about what kind of great powers these states want to be. Were there any hard questions that were being thrown at uh, General Lee by the other Southeast Asians, particularly from Southeast Asian claimant states of the South China Sea dispute? Yeah, so you had questions. So there was a question for General Lee from uh, Jay Tariella, who's the spokesperson for the Philippine Coast Guard. Um, and he asked several questions throughout the two days. He was not the only one. Jeffrey Ordaniel and some other Filipinos also asked questions that were highly critical. You had a Vietnamese speaker ask a, a tough question. An Indonesian speaker was less tough, but somewhat pointed. And then you had really pointed questions for Lee from several of the Europeans, as well as Bonnie Glazer, now at the German Marshall Fund, a former colleague of mine at CSIS, who asked specifically about the Taiwan Strait near collision that the day before and, you know, kind of hammered him on, on, isn't this proof of the fact that you should be talking lest we get into a crisis around, around Taiwan. And so I, you know, I would describe kind of across the board, the questions to General Lee as pointed, if not outright hostile. And to be fair, I think the Chinese delegation is used to this. They know that Shangri-La is not a very accommodating environment for them, given the audience. I mean, even among the Southeast Asian delegations, because it's mostly defense hands, it tends to be people whose anxieties focus on things like maritime security, where China is, is at its weakest, rhetorically. And maybe that's why they insist on showing full force in uniform, right? I mean, I think there were, initially when Shangri-La started, there were reservations on the Chinese side because they weren't used to being grilled at, on, um, at this level on an international stage. But as you said, I think they've come into their own. And they're probably trying to 
preempt and counter some of the hard questioning that they know they're going to get. And, and maybe one way is to like have all these people show up in uniform to send a message visually. Yeah, the, it, and it, it is, look, it's good to have them there. It's undoubtedly better that, that the Chinese delegations now take part than that they didn't. This was the third time that there was a Chinese defense minister provide a keynote. Now they, I think they, they're beginning to fall into another problem, though, which is now they, they view it as a youth that it's better to be there than not, that they can at least counter-message. But because the counter-messaging is so coordinated and it's all in uniform, now the narrative almost becomes like that they're on their own team, keeping to themselves. You know, they're not in, they don't engage in the networking and the broader meta discussion of Shangri-La, which is supposed to be the point, right? I mean, this is why IISS and the government of Singapore agreed to launch this thing 20 years ago. You get all these people into the room sharing, meeting each other and, and sharing notes and talking points and building understanding. And so if, if the narrative is, well, everybody does that except the Chinese delegation, the Chinese delegation kind of comes in in a huddle, takes their seats and leaves. There's still value, of course, to the, the track one meetings they have on the sidelines. And I think that's what the Singaporean government would argue is the value. But you do begin to wonder, okay, why are the Chinese in the actual plenary room? They're not engaging with the rest of the crowd like everybody else does. Yeah, I think maybe it's also a question of culture. You know, granted, the Chinese have had a few years to ease themselves into this, I guess, more open conversational style of dialogue. But could be it could be the, the military culture in China. It could just be general sense of everything needs to be orchestrated. And so they just haven't become used to this just yet. I don't know. We are falling down a rabbit hole here. While the Chinese delegation this year was the biggest it's ever been, it was also the most overwhelmingly military. I mean, they never have a ton of civilians, but in years past, like the last time I went before COVID, there were at least a few non-military academics who were already known kind of on the Western conference circuit. And so there was some engagement there. This time there was basically nobody on the Chinese side who was empowered, I think, to kind of go off script and communicate with the other delegates behind closed doors. Right. Sorry, I took us um, hunting for rabbits. Um, so let me shift gears a little. One of the really interesting clips I saw involved Prabowo and an exchange between him and the Ukrainian representative about his peace plan for Russia and Ukraine. You talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Prabowo's speech was arguably the oddest moment of the two and a half days because Prabowo was up on one of the plenaries on day one and he makes this kind of impromptu but rather detailed pitch for a Ukrainian peace plan, which as the Ukrainian defense minister who was sitting there in the front row told the press later, sounded like a Russian peace plan. It was basically let's freeze the current, you know, before the Ukrainians can get their their spring counteroffensive rolling, let's freeze lines now, create a demilitarized zone, deploy UN peacekeepers and hold referenda in occupied territories, which is giving Russia what it wants here, right? So, of course, the Ukrainians were furious and they dismissed it. The crowd was somewhere between confused and hostile to this idea. And then Prabowo reacted to that hostility, kind of the pointed questions in Q&A, by getting angry and kind of thumping the table, which also didn't help him. The analysis, you know, commentary in Indonesia, from what I can tell, there are some on social media who were supportive, but I think that most of the commentary in Indonesia is rather critical of this. He clearly irritated Jokowi by going off script. Reportedly, none of this was in his prepared remarks that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs approved in Indonesia. So he's out there like 
contradicting Jakarta's stated foreign policy. And he's doing it just kind of off the cuff in the middle of the biggest defense forum in Asia. So it, none of it played well for him. There's some analysis going on about, you know, whether or not he was even serious about this or was this just him campaigning, you know, because he's going to be running for president next year in Indonesia. Was he trying to like get a few clips showing how he's the other statesman? I tried to push one of our mutual friends, Evan Laxmana, who's now with IISS in Singapore on this. So why don't we hear what he had to say on the last day of the conference? So Evan, before I get to the big keynotes that all the media is going to talk about, let's talk about the little thing that's going to make some regional press. And that was Indonesian Defense Minister Prabowo's single-handed plan to solve the Russian war in Ukraine. What do we make of that? Well, it's certainly something that Indonesian officials have been thinking about. He has certainly been thinking about Ukraine uh, in the past year as well. But it is certainly a shocker, to say the least, that this plan was released at this particular forum in that particular detail. Now, this is where I think we will start to see whether or not in the coming weeks uh, there will be more details of how exactly are we going to implement that. My impression is that this is an initial salvo. It's an initial idea to put on the table, uh, and it's still at best a work in progress. And therefore, I hope that this is his way to sort of gather feedback on how to make it a reality. All right. So we went through Prabowo's keynote, which I would say was not particularly well received by the audience. Let's talk about the two real big ones. So first full day, we opened with uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin's keynote. And then this morning, we had Defense Minister uh, General Li Shangfu's opening keynote. I would describe the latter as uh, soft at the beginning and then suddenly very strident, Mm -hmm. similar to what we heard from his predecessor, General Wei, the last two SLDs. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's just me, the American. How do you think it's going to be received in the region? Well, first of all, I think the region is a lot more familiar with Secretary Austin. He's been to the region a couple of times. His first speech here at IISS when he first came to Singapore was very well received. I think at that point he struck the right tone of humility, but also willingness to work with partners. And I felt he struck the same tone here yesterday as well. What's interesting, I think, is from the Chinese, who we've heard for the first time speak publicly on these issues and take questions from the public as well. I think in general, the message and the delivery are two different things. The message, to be honest, not really new. We've heard uh, the same lines from the Chinese before, whether it's about Taiwan or U.S.-China or its so-called global security initiative. What's different, I think, as far as the reception of some of the countries participating here is the body language, the intonation and the demeanor and tenor uh, uh, of, of how the speech was delivered. He's definitely different than Wei Feng He. In fact, some would say here that he looks like one of your neighborhood uncle who's willing to deliver strong, harsh position lines in a way that's sort of disarming and sort of more welcoming, open to dialogue and discussion. In fact, for the first time, he actually stopped John Chipman from closing the session and actually added on an additional line about how he's willing to talk to scholars and have more open conversations about the regional security issues. So for me, I think that demeanor And that tone is probably what some of the more optimists uh, who are here in the dialogue will take. Uh, But the rest in terms of positioning, in terms of lines on Taiwan, these are things we've heard before. Yeah, I was just going to ask you if um, Prabowo going off script had anything to do with small election possibly taking place next year in Indonesia. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I spoke to some others of the Indonesian delegation on the sidelines. I think that was the consensus. But then the consensus also, if that was the case, it certainly didn't help him. I mean, it, it probably doesn't hurt him. But it was just a weird moment that like has now ruffled feathers within his own government. And it's not clear who convinced him that this was a good idea. All right, Greg. So I guess we're taking turns to be at Shangri-La. I was there last year and you're there this year. What's kind of your your main takeaway from this year, having not been there last year? It was good to be back, and it's good to see Shangri-La back in full force. The narrative of the last three in-person Shangri-Las has clearly been kind of dominated by this analysis of the competing U.S. and Chinese keynotes. And I don't think there's any good way for IISS or Singapore to extricate themselves from that now. It's people go and they're wholly focused on the messaging and counter-messaging by the Americans and, and the Chinese as with last year, I think the consensus within the room, or at least a majority opinion, would be that Austin got the better of this one, um, that the narratives around rule of law and sovereignty, and especially the fact that, like last year, he mostly used Asian leaders and partners as foils to like quoting them on the points he wants to make, I think that that resonates. But I will say that General Lee, when he gave his speech, while it was quite strident, and I don't think anybody was convinced of anything. Um, as Evan said, one of the things that some people did note is that, well, at least he's a little nicer about it than his predecessor. So they, if nothing else, maybe the Chinese side is getting a little better about delivering this table-thumping, strident, and somewhat threatening message that they deliver once a year to all of their smaller neighbors. I also just have to flag the one piece of the Chinese speech that happens every year that tickles all of us. There's always the line about how China has never invaded another country or started a war with any other neighbor. And every time that happens, I always make sure that I'm on like the WhatsApp groups with uh, Vietnamese and Philippine and Indian delegates in the room. And it's just like a wall of emojis of rolling eyeballs. And that, again, it, it shows that it, it doesn't play well. It's not a good crowd for China when they try to deliver these somewhat exaggerated narratives, but they have to do it anyway. I'm sure that some of the participants always play drinking games to that um, at Shangri-La. <laughs> yeah, they take a shot every time that line That's comes right, up yeah. at, at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> Why not? It's 9.30 p.m. somewhere else. <laughs> All right, Greg, thanks so much for your extra commentary and thanks for getting those insights from on the ground in Shangri-La. Thanks so much, Alina, and we will see speak to everybody on the next episode in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes and Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And tell your friends about us as well. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Lam Chun. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 